All right. Uh, we are in Philippians. We are in chapter 3. Um, yeah, what a morning. All right, here's how we're going to be. And all of our kids, uh, when they were little, uh, went through a scared stage. Those of you that are parents, generally that happens, right? Uh, it would happen right before bed. And so right before bed, I would go in and I'd shut the closet doors and I'd look under the beds for them and I'd remove clothes from chairs, sometimes take the chairs out of the room. You know the drill. And then the other time it would happen would be like in the middle of the night uh, when they would wake up, I would wake up to a face literally right there. And that face would be like, I'm scared, Daddy. <laughs> and I'd open up the covers, and they'd come in. All right, so on one particular occasion, one particular child who will remain nameless, but she's sitting on the front row, <laughs> was in the middle of a scared stage. And it was an extended scare stage. Uh, and so I decided, well, let's kind of find out what the root source of her fear is. Maybe we could talk it out and talk to the Lord together about her fear, pray it to the Lord, um, and help her trust God and his active personal presence in fears such as these. And so we identify the fear together, and then I say, honey, do you want to talk to the Lord about this fear? And with the covers all the way up to her eyeballs, she says, I have, Daddy. I try to hold God in my thoughts, but I can't. God just won't stay there. I try to hold God in my thoughts, but I can't. God just won't stay there. Most of in this room, most people that go to church, believe incredible stuff. I mean, we believe the most incredible biblical thoughts. We believe things like, God loves me. The sinner, like he actually loves a sinner like me. We believe this stuff. We believe stuff like Jesus lived and died and rose for us. Amazing biblical thoughts. We believe things like God actually forgives me. As we've sung about, he actually pardons me. That he regarded me in a helpless estate and shed his own blood for me. We believe stuff like this. Incredible biblical teaching, biblical truths, biblical thoughts. We believe stuff like he gives me his own righteousness. That I don't have to sit here and try to keep striving to establish a righteousness of my own. He, he gives me his. We believe stuff like this. We believe stuff like he gives me a new life. A new life. He doesn't mess around with an old nature. He just gives you a flat out new nature. That has all the potentialities and all the realities called the fruit of the spirit. Amazing biblical thoughts. Like incredible stuff. We believe stuff like he helps me. The psalmist said he's a very present help. We believe this. Most of us believe incredible biblical thoughts until we don't. Until we don't think it anymore. Until we don't feel it. Until we don't experience it. Until we don't do it. I try to hold God in my thoughts, but I can't. God just won't stay there. So there's this really old guy, a guy named John Owen. He lived in the 1600s. And he's, he's famous. One of his famous works called The Doctrine of Justification by Faith. He described the Christian life as two towers. Two towers. I don't know. Maybe that's 
That's where the two towers come from. Lord of the Rings, I don't know. Um, tower number one, quote, is the objective grace of the gospel. In other words, in the Christian life, you need to have the objective grace of the gospel. You need to have biblical teaching. You need to have biblical thoughts. You need to have this incredible truth about the reality of what God has done objectively apart from you by Jesus. Amazing, right? Tower number one. Tower number two, quote, the subjective grace of the gospel in your heart by faith. In other words, now this objective stuff becomes clear to your mind, real to your heart. In other words, tower number two is you experience it. You experience it. It's written on your mind and it's written into your very being. There's another really old guy, a guy named Jonathan Edwards. Some say he's the smartest American to ever come from this continent. He says there's a difference between someone telling you about the sweetness of honey and tasting it for yourself. Today's text is about tasting honey. Today's text is about experiencing Jesus. Tower number two. And so here's what's going to happen. We're going to read the text. We're going to dive into this text. And here's what you can expect. You're like, what do I expect, Jeff, when I come in, you know, we come to worship and come to hear a sermon? What do I expect? What should I expect? What kind of expectations should I have? Here's the expectation you should have. Every time you go to hear someone preach or you hear a teaching, you should expect to experience Jesus. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. All right, finally, my brothers, which is so interesting. I love the way he writes, right? He's still got two more chapters. He's a storyteller. He's a preacher. You know, he's just still getting warmed up when he's saying he's ending. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you, meaning it's good, it's healthy for you for me to write these things. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship God by or in the Spirit of God. And glory, which means to rest, rely, rejoice in Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself, I have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I've got more. I'm circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, what he's saying is I go to the right church. I've got a church righteousness. I'm of the people of Israel. In other words, I'm of the right race. I have a race righteousness. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, which means I come from a really successful family. I'm the most favored son of all the Israelite sons. That's my family. The first king came from us. Right? The first one born in the promised land was us. He has a performance righteousness. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, I'm a pure Hebrew. We didn't accommodate to the culture. We didn't accommodate to the Greeks. We didn't accommodate to the Romans. I have a national, cultural righteousness. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. It means I'm spiritually elite. I'm on God's A-team. I have holy man righteousness. I'm on the A-team. The rest of you are on the B-team. As to zeal, 
I'm a persecutor of the church. In other words, I'm a blues brother. I'm on a mission from God. I have a mission from God righteousness. As to righteousness under the law, I'm blameless. In other words, I keep the law better than any of you. Guaranteed. He'd walk into this room and he could walk into any temple and he could walk into any synagogue and he could say to anybody there, I keep the law better than you. I have tons of self-righteousness. But whatever gain I had, I count for loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, verse 8, which means, let me explain further, I count present tense everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. There it is, the big idea of the text. Everything is about experiencing Jesus, knowing Jesus. It's life. It's everything. Nothing else ultimately in light of that matters. For his sake, because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and count, present tense, them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, present tense, and be found in him, present tense, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know, present tense, him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share, present tense, his sufferings, becoming like him, present tense, in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead, present tense. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word. This is an unbelievable text, an unbelievable passage. Ask that you would fill us with your spirit, that we would experience you with this text. So, oh, Holy Spirit, come. Give clarity to our minds, realness to our hearts. Give us, fill us, shine on the page, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I try to hold God in my thoughts, but I just can't, right? He won't stay there. We need to experience Jesus. We need Jesus to stay there in our thinking, in our feelings, in our experience, in our doings, in our relationships, in our jobs, in the ball, on the ball field, at school, when suffering. We need to experience Jesus, right? Most Christians, most churches affirm that. That's not a controversial thing to say. So let's look at verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Verse 1, or Paul, or the Bible, or God, is commanding you to experience Jesus right now. Literally, he's saying, he's commanding you to be in a state of happiness in Jesus. He's commanding you to be in a state of joy in Jesus. He's commanding you to be in a state of well-being with Jesus. That's unbelievable. You're actually being commanded to have happiness. You're being commanded to flourish as a human being. You're being commanded to finally and fully be yourself. <laughs> to be comfortable in your own flesh. To have the real fiber of your being electrified with energy and joy and fullness and flourishing and life. This is amazing because verse 1, and we're being told two amazing truths simultaneously at the same time. Number one, truth number one, we're being told that the number one emotion of Christianity is joy. 
You know, it was so interesting. I'm glad he said it before I could say it because if I go behind him, it doesn't sound as bad. This guy, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he'd say, you know, you'd wonder if that was really true in the church. Christians frowning, that's what he would say. So stern, so metallic, so serious, as a famous comic book character said. The other truth is this, truth number two. Number one emotion of Christianity is joy. Joy is found in Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the name. Rejoice in Jesus and his salvation. Amazing. We are being commanded to be happy in Jesus. So, verse number one, we are being commanded right now. Right now, you are commanded to experience Jesus. You are commanded to taste the honey. Not just have cognitive data and information about it. Oh, honey is sweet like this because of these properties. But to taste it. Oh, it's sweet. So obviously, the question of the text right now, right? We're right here, right? How do you do that? How do we experience Jesus? How does that happen? Now, you'll be glad to know that we've talked, and I've said this over many weeks now in Philippians because we've hit several doctrines, that it can be very confusing in the church to understand these doctrines, right? Because there are different biblical thoughts. There are different biblical teachings about pretty significant doctrines in the church, right? I mean, so it can be confusing today to figure out how to do this. I mean, we have different teaching on baptism, the Lord's Supper. I mean, there's whole systems called Calvinism and Arminianism debating about how to see God's sovereignty and free will, how to understand the relationship between grace and works and faith and obedience and law and gospel. Significant stuff, that can be kind of confusing because church A says this, church B says this, church tradition says this, church tradition over here says that, right? So this, it would come as no surprise that if we were to say, how do you experience Jesus, that there's going to be a lot of confusion, right? But here's the difference this morning. This morning, unlike other mornings, I'm not going to give you all the confusing options out there. Why? Because I have matured as a person in a week. I'm more chill this week. I don't need to list for you all the confusing options that are out there. I don't feel the need to pick a fight this morning. I really don't. I've matured. And my family's very happy for me. So I'm just going to give you the Bible's answer. Look at 3.1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Okay, here it comes, right? Here it comes. How do we do this? What's the Bible's answer? To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe, good, and healthy for you. Do you see it? To write to you. To write to you. To Right to you. Paul, how do we experience Jesus? Paul, how do I rejoice in the Lord? Paul, how do I taste the honey? Paul, 
It is written to you. How do you experience Jesus? How do we experience Jesus? With the Bible. So I don't have to give you all the confusing lists that are out there today. Because Paul just settled it. Do you want to experience Jesus? You experience Jesus with the Bible. That in and of itself is absolutely amazing, and we could go on and on and on about the implications of that, can we not? Oh, I'm not as chill as I thought. I mean, you don't have to go somewhere else to experience Jesus. Oh, something's happening over there. I need to go there. You don't have to go to a specially anointed person to experience Jesus. You don't have to have the fear of spiritually missing out, spiritual FOMO over something that's happening or some other teaching that's happening or some other celebrity pastor that's happening or something to experience Jesus. It is written for you. You experience Jesus with the Bible. So simple, so concrete, so practical so near to you right now. How near? Paul says, so near. It's as near as the word right next to you. So let's experience Jesus with the Bible. You ready? That's what we're going to do. We're going to do it right now in this text because that's what Paul says the text does. So are you ready? Here it comes. Get ready. Here it comes. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers, verse 2. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Oh, no one saw this coming. No one sees this coming. The Philippians didn't see this coming. The Philippians are reading it, and they're like, rejoice in the Lord, and they're like, yes, and they're all gathering together, and they're like, Paul's going to continue with some amazing teaching that we're going to experience Jesus. He's going to show up on the spot, and it's going to happen right now, and all of a sudden he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the dogs. What just happened? What's going on here? Well, first of all, the first thing we need to know is no one says look out for the butterfly. There are no signs that say beware of butterflies. It's look out for the T-Rex. It's beware of dogs. Beware of the dog. I was running one time. And I was going down in the neighborhood, and it was early in the morning, and I came around the corner, and you know what I'm going to say. I heard it. Heard it. But it wasn't, you know, it's, that more, it's when it's, it's dark, and you can't make out things, but you can see moving shapes. It's that kind of thing. You know what I'm talking about? And then I hear a run, and I'm like, oh, no, this is happening right now. And I knew that I can't get to that tree, that car's too far, and the shape, because it came out of the corner of my eye, is a big shape, and it's moving really, really fast. So I knew I only had one option. I just turn and face this doggone thing. 
And so with my chest and my throat, I turned to face him, ready to go. And he's coming full steam at me, full steam. And then all of a sudden, he's yanked up off his feet, flies through the air, and is pulled back to the ground by a chain. Yeah. Beware of the dog. What's going on? Paul's warning in this text is he's telling you to look out for the number one reason Christians and churches do not experience Jesus with the Bible. He's warning us about the number one reason that we experience so little joy, so little life, so little happiness, and so little well-being in our Christian life and in the church today. He's looking out for the number one reason that we don't rejoice in the Lord. And he calls it, look out for dog teaching. That's what he's saying. What is dog teaching? Well, he tells us three times in verse 3 through 4. Do you see it? I don't know if we can see it. 3, 4. You see it? Confidence in the flesh. He says that three times in two verses. Dog teaching is confidence in the flesh. And you're thinking, what is the flesh? Well, you need to know about the flesh. It's actually a very rich theological word. The flesh is more than your body. The flesh is actually a realm of existence. And what happened in Genesis 3 when the first human beings turned away from God who is life and spirit, when you turn away from life, you enter into the realm of the dead. When you turn away from light, you enter into the realm of the darkness. When you turn away from everything that's good and pleasing and true and beautiful, you turn into the land of the upside down to use stranger things. The land or the realm of the dead is called the flesh. The land or the realm of the living is called the spirit in the Bible. And so what's happening here is you could say confidence in your sinful nature, confidence in the sin, in the singular as a dark power, confidence in your edemic self. Paul calls it the old self. It's confidence in yourself. He says that three times. He gives seven examples of dog teaching in verses 5 through 6. I listed some of those. Number one, church righteousness. Number two, race righteousness. Number three, performance righteousness, achievement righteousness, success righteousness. None of this stuff goes on today. Number four, political, ideological, national, cultural righteousness. Oh, we don't have that going on today. Number five, spiritually elite righteousness, super saint righteousness, holy man righteousness. Number six, I'm on a mission from God, righteousness. I'm really, really close to God. I'm on his A-team, and I know exactly what the mission is, people. Number seven, to kind of round it all off, every strategy, every form of self-righteousness, confidence in the flesh. Then he graphically ends it, what dog teaching is, by describing it as a circumcision gone wrong. You just mutilate the flesh. Pretty graphic. Now notice what he's saying. This kind of teaching doesn't cut off the flesh, doesn't remove the flesh, doesn't kill the flesh. It just mutilates it, moves it around doesn't accomplish anything. And there's the fatal flaw of confidence in the flesh. It can't 
get rid of the flesh. So what is dog teaching? It's confidence in the flesh teaching. We could say it this way. Luther says it this way. It's teaching that curves you in on yourself. It's teaching that keeps you looking at yourself. It's teaching that only gives you you, not Jesus. It's teaching that keeps you experiencing you, not Jesus. Do you see how this works? Confidence in the flesh. Beware of dog teaching that keeps you curved in on yourself. And again, we could go through all the different ways in which this happens, but I'm not going to do that this morning because I'm more chill this morning. So do you want to experience Jesus with the Bible? Paul says the number one thing you need to know right now before you do is look out for dog teaching that keeps you curved in on yourself because you'll never experience Jesus when you're only experiencing yourself. That's just so like, wow, have a good day, Paul. Right? Rejoice in the Lord. <laughs> right? He's like, yeah, look out for the dog. Shink. Okay. Let's experience Jesus in the Bible. Let's put that one behind us. Some of you are deeply discouraged this morning with you. Meaning, you say stuff like this. I keep self-sabotaging. I self-sabotage my relationship with God. I self-sabotage me, my life. I self-sabotage my relationships. You say things to yourself like, I just don't change. I never change. You say things like, my sin is too powerful. I'm stuck. My will is too weak. Okay? I want you to look at verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by is okay, but it should be in. Remember, because it's a realm. It's a sphere. And because you're in it, you do stuff by it. That's the way the order should go. We worship in the Spirit of God or by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, or we rest, rely, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. Okay, so here's what's happening. What is circumcision all about in the Old Testament? I mean, it's kind of creepy. For guys, it's incredibly creepy, right? Here's what's literally happening. It is a partial cutting off of the flesh. Why? To save the whole body of the person. In other words, circumcision is this incredible, experiential, deeply personal sermon, sign for all of Israel is that you must have the flesh cut off of you if you are to live. You must have the Adamic self removed from you if you are to live. You must have sin in its nature handed over to death if you are to live. And we're thinking, well, was it really that big of a deal or really that big of a sign? Well, remember when Moses had just led Israel out of the promised land, but then all of a sudden he hadn't been. And an angel of death came to visit him, but his wife was quick with a sword or a knife. It's a partial cutting off 
to save the whole body, right? There's no life in the flesh. No one can live in the flesh. That's why verse 3 says, we worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So on the cross, here's what happens for you. On the cross, for you self-sabotagers, for you that think your life can't change, you think, I can't do anything. And the answer is, absolutely, because you need to be circumcised. And on the cross, Christ was circumcised. And on the cross, it wasn't a partial circumcision. On the cross, it was a whole body circumcision. That in Jesus, the flesh, the edemic self, the old self, the sinful nature, sin, was cut off from you. You are the circumcision, Christian. You are in the Spirit of God, Christian. It's already happened to you. Cosmic life change happened the moment you became a Christian. Your zombie self was cut off. And you've been given a new nature, the Spirit. We are the circumcision. Your sin has been cut off. Jesus is your circumcision. You're now alive in the spirit. So practical application is this. Stop trying to defeat something that's already defeated. This is the way most of you, when we're self-sabotaging, it's because you're coming to your sinful nature and you're trying to fix the thing. You can't fix it. It took the cross to kill it, and it still takes the cross to deal with it. So what should you do? What you should do is stop trying to fix something you can't fix. What you should do is glory, rest, rely in Jesus and what he's done for you and put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, stop trying to defeat something that's already defeated. Recognize the fact that you have been circumcised. You are the circumcision. You are a new creature. You have a new nature. And that new nature bears fruit. So start focusing on who Jesus is and what he's done and start no confidence in your flesh. Stop looking at yourself. And what's amazing is that you actually might start feeling better and might start seeing some areas improve because you're not constantly giving them attention. There's a movie about Napoleon coming out Thanksgiving. Cannot wait, by the way. Oh, my word. Joaquin Phoenix, is that dude like one of the greatest actors? Yes, he is. So Napoleon said, now Napoleon has seen a lot of dead bodies. Napoleon said the corpse of an enemy always smells sweet. Christian, smell the sweetness of the corpse of your flesh, of your sin nature. Smell it. It's sweet. It's been killed and cut off. Experience Jesus with the Bible. Some of you are lost. You feel it. I'm lost. You feel it. Church righteousness has failed you. You've gone from church tradition to church tradition, church theology to church theology, the newest and latest. I mean, we can go on and on and on, and you're still lost. You feel it. Race righteousness has failed you. It worked for a while. It gave you a sense of meaning. It gave you a sense of purpose. It gave you a sense that you're a part of something bigger than you, and then it didn't. And you're still lost. 
performance righteousness has failed you. Of course it has, because everyone fails eventually. And performance doesn't forgive you. It just punishes you. When you fail in success and fail in winning and fail in performance, there is no mercy. Performance crushes you. Political, ideological, national righteousness has failed you. You see it all around you. Everybody hates each other. That hasn't done a good job. Super saint righteousness has failed you. Of course it has, because you're not a super saint, and neither is holy holly sitting in the seat next to you. Mission from God, Blues Brothers righteousness, you're special, has failed you. It's just made you a bigger jerk. Self-righteousness has failed you. It's made you exhausted, anxious, and depressed, except on the good days when you do pretty well. Look at verse 8. For his sake, or because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things, and count, present tense, them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I am lost, you say. You are, Jesus says. But in me, you're found. In me, Righteous. You're perfect. You're holy. You're finally yourself. In me, you have all the righteousness you need. In me, you will find all the love and acceptance you ever dreamed. In me, you and yourself feel lost, but you are found in me. You're never going to be found in your race. You're never going to be found in an ideology. You're never going to be found in a nationalistic citizen. You're never going to be found in your performance. You're never going to be found in human approval. You're never going to be found in success. You'll only be found in him. Experience Jesus with the Bible. Last one. Some of you long to know Jesus more. You want to know Jesus more. You know, you want more connection with him. You want more experience of him. You want more answered prayer. You want more send me God. You want more to be used by God. You want more growth. You want more life change. You want more love for people. You want more. I want to make a difference. You want more. I want to enjoy this creation. I want to live fully. I want to work hard. You want more. And you should Verse 10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So yesterday, you know, I had that habit of reading the Psalms because I need to, right? I need peace, be still. 
And I came across Psalm 110, and verse 3 goes like this. It's an interesting psalm because it starts off with, and that's where everybody freaks out. uh, David is writing it, but he's saying that God is talking to God at his right hand. Some God is talking to some champion who's God at his right hand. It's just an unbelievable psalm. And in verse 3, it says this. Your people will offer themselves freely to you on the day of your power. The resurrection is the day of his power. Power. It's the day of his power. Power. The day of power has already come. So, of course, get to know Jesus more. The day of power has already come. Of course, pray more. The day of power has already come. Of course, ask to be used more. The day of power has already come. Of course, I want to work hard. I want to do stuff. I want to be used. Of course, the day of power has already come. (coughs) There's a uh, guy named Richard Sibbs. Got all these old guys I'm reading these days. Can I just tell you, there was something that happened on Wednesday night. Sarah, are you here, Heller? Yeah. Okay, so Sarah and I are standing, we're in a group, and one of the cutest kids says, hi, Pastor Jeff. Hey, sweetie. And then looks at me and then looks at Sarah and says, is she your daughter? (laughs) So I guess I'm in that old guy category. Never thought that was going to happen. All right. Richard Sibbs. Do you know who read Richard Sibbs? So this is the kind of quality of dude he was. You know who read him like it was one of his favorite authors? Jonathan Edwards. Okay, so he says it this way. Richard Sibbs says, let's say you're a farmer and you've just been told that you're going to have this year the most unbelievable fruitful crop ever. Like, it's going to be unlike anything you've ever seen. You're a farmer. You're just told this. You've been given the, not just a prediction. You've been given the statement. You will have the most bountiful, incredible, fruitful crop ever. What are you going to do? He says, nothing? You're going to hang up your plow? Are you not going to turn on the tractor? Are you going to do nothing? Are you not going to work? And he says, of course not. He says, you're going to get to work. You're going to press into the bountiful, fruitful harvest. And so what Paul is saying, the day of power has come. Get to work. You have now the freedom to go work and do great stuff. Because it's not your righteousness. It's actually just a thrilling, excellent, energizing, wonderful, loving, blessing, kind, good thing that gives you joy and other people. The day of power has come. Get to work. 
experience Jesus with the Bible.